Uh, if you're a visitor here with us this morning, we are coming down to the tail end of an eight-week conversation we've been having about courage and fear in the Bible. We started uh, back several weeks ago now with the most, often, the most often repeated command in the Bible, which is the command to fear not. More than any other command that God repeats himself on, the one that he most often repeats is the command not to fear. And I think one of the ways that we can reframe that, if it helps us think about it, why this is something that Jesus or that God in his word so often repeats himself on, is to think about this command and rephrase it in its inverse. We might think that the opposite of fear is to be courageous. And certainly there are places like Joshua 1.9 where God says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. But I think that the opposite of fear is not, at least as the Bible would have us think of it, is not so much be courageous as it is trust me. I think if we were to, from God's perspective, if we were to reframe in its inverse the command to fear not, the command would be trust me. That's really the opposite of fear, at least as the Bible would have us think about it and frame it. Biblical courage is rooted in faith, a trust in God. And in our Bible, God often leads his people, often, 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 not only in the Bible, but in the history of the church, maybe even in the history of your own life, God has this way of leading people out into situations and places where they had to answer their fears not with what they could see and not with an inner reserve of gutsy fortitude. They had to answer their fears with, I have to trust God with a quiet confidence in who he is and what he has said. This is a disconcerting thing for people who want to be able to see the reason for our hope. But faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We're called to walk by faith and not by sight. And guys, this calls for an awful lot of courage, an awful lot. And this morning, in our conversation, we've had a lot of good conversations up to this point. We've talked about the fear of the unknown. We've talked about the fear of man. We've talked about that unique species of fear that is attached to need when we have something coming up and we don't have what it takes to see that through. We've talked about the fear of the culture, the courage to, to live in a countercultural way. That was last week. We've talked about the fear of death. And this morning, what I want to talk to you about is where do we find the courage for Christian mission? Where do we find the courage to step out beyond what we can see, beyond what in our own wisdom makes sense, to follow God in obedience into some endeavor, some area that he's called us to, maybe even just as simple as a conversation with somebody? How do we find the courage to venture out into that? And to do that, I want us to turn in our Bibles to Judges 6 and 7 primarily. Uh, we're going to there uh, be camping out, hanging out with a guy named Gideon this morning. But before we really get to his story, uh, which Gideon is a great story, when I was a kid growing up, I'll confess it, now that the kids have left, that I found church kind of boring, I'll tell you the truth. My dad was a pastor, and I had to go to church. And sometimes as a little kid, I would go there, and 
Um, I couldn't bring toys, and I couldn't bring crayons, but I could bring my Bible. And so I would flip to stories in the Bible that I thought were more interesting than whatever my dad was talking about that Sunday, because my mom couldn't say, don't read your Bible. (laughs) You can't say that. So the pages of like Samson's story or David and Goliath, these were pretty well-worn pages in the Bible of a young Josh Tates. And over time, I grew to love church. I matured in the faith to the place where now I'm the one who's torturing children up here. (laughs) But the story of Gideon was one of those stories that as a little boy really captured my imagination, really enjoyed reading it and rereading it. And um, still stuck with me all these years, but man, is it a rich story and full of uh, wonderful things for us to think about as we think about this idea of finding the courage for Christian mission. But within the church, we often think and speak as though the work of the church, the mission to meet needs in Jesus' name and to share the good news with people who are stuck in a whole lot of bad news. We oftentimes think and speak as though this mission is the highest activity of the church and the one that is closest to God's heart. And although I don't want to downplay at all the importance of evangelism and mission or the desperate, urgent need of this hour for each and every one of us to go out into the harvest as missionaries and evangelists. It's been said that the situation is desperate, but oftentimes the church isn't. And I think that's a true statement. I don't want to downplay at all the very important truth that we should all be out on mission. But it seems to me that Christian mission, at least as the Bible describes it, exists as a means to another higher end. Christian mission is not really the ultimate goal It is the means. The goal is to be worshipers of God, true worshipers of God. We cannot boil the Christian faith down to a to-do list. And the Bible is clear that it is possible to do the work of the church without really being the church. And so when we come to the Bible, the primary importance that God puts is on who we be not necessarily what we do. It's not that doing is unimportant, it's that it's only important if it's the overflow of who we be. Now, this might all seem like semantics, but I want to show you from the book of Judges, from the story of Gideon, that your own inner world of motivations and love for who God is, this is the first frontier of mission. You cannot venture out without having first done business with God in your inner world, in your own within. So we need to begin here with this thought, because in our text for this morning, we are introduced to this very interesting and complicated man named Gideon, who lived in a very interesting and complicated time in Israel's history, and that is the period of the Judges. Uh, We do not have time this morning to get into all of it, but Judges... Um, is kind of like the Wild West time in the Bible. There's no sheriff. Everybody's just kind of out on their own. It's a lawless time. Um, 
It's in it really an interesting time. This is the days when we see Samson doing his thing. You find that in the story of Judges and really just full of very interesting stories. Again, as a boy, this was a well-worn book in my Bible, <laughs> full of good stuff. But we find the story of Gideon in the 6th, 7th, and 8th chapter of the book of Judges. And his story begins in chapter 6 with these words. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come up like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. Now, let me pause here for a second and ask you kind of a basic question. What's the mission? Uh, If you were alive at this time, and you and your family were caught in the midst of this mess being described, which you could no sooner lay up something for your family to live on than this horde of people would show up and take it by force. Again, Wild West kind of stuff. What is the problem that calls for action and that needs addressing? Is it this horde of thieving and pillaging Midianites? And I imagine that would have been the view of most Israelites at that time. I'll be honest, it would have been my view. If if I'd been sitting in front of Fox News or something in those days, I'd be like, ah, these Midianites, somebody should do something, right? But is this really the thing? The first verse tells us that the Midianites are a problem in the same way that a fever is a problem. They are a symptom and a natural consequence of something deeper, and that something deeper is found and identified in the very first line of the chapter. Before going on for all these sentences to describe the Midianites and the horrors and the deprivation of that's occurring, it says this, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then we get into the problem. So the reason why I want to begin here this morning is because the first lesson that the story of Gideon has for us about how to find the courage for Christian mission is this, the first frontier of mission is our own inner world. Faith, at least as the Bible describes it, is rooted in a belief in the goodness and necessity of what God has said. And so before God could come to a people and say the good thing, the necessary thing is to move against the Midianites, he has to first talk to them about how they've been stopping up their ears when he's been talking to them about the evil. Like, it would be very strange for them to believe in the goodness and necessity of doing something about these Midianites while not believing in the goodness and necessity of God's moral law. So, on the one hand, they believe what God has said, but they're living like they can disregard what He said in all different kinds of ways. 
And so I don't think we can go very far being courageous in Christian mission while living as though what God has said doesn't matter. Because courage is rooted in a belief in the goodness and necessity of what he has said. If we don't believe that, we will not have biblical courage for Christian mission. And God has spoken an awful lot in his word in an explicit way. I think I've shared with you before, I worked for about 10 years in Christian camping out in Southern California. Loved it. And during the summers, it was like this 24-hour youth group with an emphasis on service. We had sometimes 15 to like 20 young people would come and live there on the grounds. And just all summer long, they were there, and it was, we would have Bible studies and great conversations, really build a strong relationship with this team of young people. Wonderful thing. Um, but a lot of the times, they would come to me and say, I just am really seeking God for what He wants me to do. Do I go to this college or that college? Do I study this or that? Should I, what should I do? And as I got to know them, I would always think to myself, I know what He wants you to do. He wants you to show up for work on time. <laughs> he, he wants you to stop gossiping so much. He wants you to really pursue sexual purity. Like, I think that discernment in some of those amoral questions comes as a byproduct of a yielded, submitted life. And really, they were saying, I want to hear from God, while simultaneously going, na, 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 na. I don't want to hear from God. He's made himself explicitly clear. We've heard him. We know what he's said. And then we go, oh, but God, I really want to talk to you about this. No, no, don't talk about that. That's not how this relationship works, you see. So we really have to, before going out on mission, the first frontier is going to be our own inner world. If God is calling you towards something that requires courage, very often, the, in, and I think we see this in the Bible and I've seen it in my own life and the lives of others, the very first thing he's going to draw you into conversation about is first subduing the unruly, wild, and woolly place that is my heart. Matthew 7 quotes Jesus as saying this, Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, Jesus is not saying here that you should not go on mission to help people with the specks that are in their eye. He's just saying that the first frontier of mission is your own eye. You'll see more clearly if you first take that log out of your own. You do business in all sincerity with God in the inner, your own inner world. It'll be, help you be a be- better help to people in their inner world. But let's get back to Gideon for a second. Here's uh, where God, after having a conversation with him, with again, we can't do this in a verse-by-verse way. I encourage you to read the whole story. But after first talking to Gideon and calling him to a work to go and do something about the Midianites, the very first thing he does is he has this conversation. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold. 
here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, and behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerobal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. And then it says... Now all the Midianites and Malachites. What I want you to see here is this. The reason why all this was happening at the first is because the people were wicked. They had broken God's law. They'd strayed far afield from what was clo- not only what was closest to God's heart, but they were clearly out of bounds. They had erected idols and altars to false gods and were openly worshiping them. And so the very first thing that they must do to before they go on mission, was they had to deal with this in-house issue. And so before ever Gideon can go and start to work on the mission out there, they had to do something in here about this evil issue. And I think very often this is the way God works. You begin to feel a calling towards something, and it's difficult, and it's challenging, and But the very first conversation he wants to draw you into as preparation for that is some some matter of your own inner world, your own obedience, your own yielded submission to his law. Something to see here just in passing, Uh, it's not really a major point, but uh, we saw here back in, um, let's see, where was it? That the, the trigger here that gets the whole thing going is that the people cried out to God for them to send somebody down. I believe it's in verse 6, maybe. I don't have it here. But it says that the people cried out to God, and then we see that he sends, he starts this thing with Gideon. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Uh, Once again, I think that this is an important thing as well. Not all of us are called to be the Gideon, but all of us should be in prayer. Like as we look out over our church family, as we look out over the culture, we all have a sense maybe, or maybe we have different senses of what the great need is, what the mission ought to be. And so we begin praying. Um, On Sunday mornings, uh, ever since our series through the life of Esther, that was back in 2018, Uh, Ron Kofsted and I have been meeting in my office praying, and we've had different people join us at different times, but we pray for the church, we pray for the lost, and we pray for our missionaries every Sunday. And uh, my belief there is that in a way that's mysterious that I don't really understand very well, God, it glorifies Him most and pleases Him most to move in response to the prayers of His people. 
I don't always understand this about God, but it's true. He doesn't need our prayers. But in praying, he's pleased to move in response to that. And so we want to build into our fellowship a time that we are praying for those things, where we pray for the church and for our missionaries, for the lost. And here we see that these people cry out to the Lord in prayer. And his answer is going to be Gideon. And I think that there are things that we should be crying out for as a people, and, I'm, and it will surprise us maybe who shows up as the answer to that prayer. Um, but I'm, I'm open to just about anything God wants to do here, for sure. But the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. I think this is a very important thing to be doing, for sure. The next thing I want us to see about Gideon, and the Bible really goes out of its way to make this abundantly clear. First of all, he's a man who's been prayed for. People have been cried out. They may not have had Gideon in mind when they prayed, but this is going to be the answer to that prayer. And he is a man who is at least willing to do the important work of addressing the evil in, in, their, own, in their own inner hearts in, within the nation of Israel. But the Bible really goes out of its way to convince you that Gideon is not a naturally brave man. He's not a courageous guy at all. God, in giving us some biographical details of the man Gideon, really wants us to know this is a guy who's not brave, very timid. When we're first introduced to Gideon, we find him beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Sometimes people say this is evidence that he was governed by fear. I just think he's probably practical. <laughs> like, it just seems to me like that's what anybody would do if you didn't want your stuff robbed, right? Um, but that is how we're first introduced to him. He's down in a hole. This is not the best way to go about um, getting your, your grain. You've you got to do it up in the open air. But he's doing it down in a hole because if people see it, they're going to come take his stuff. When the angel of the Lord comes to him, Gideon immediately expresses his doubts about God's faithfulness to the Israelites. When Gideon realizes who's speaking to him, he insists that as the lowest member of one of the least remarkable families in all of Israel, this is not a job for him. Somebody else should be doing this. Gideon kind of seems like one of those guys who complains a lot about how things are, but when he's asked to do something about it, he's full of excuses of why somebody else maybe should be doing that, not him. This is kind of who Gideon is. Even once God makes it clear that he himself is calling Gideon, Gideon wants a sign just to be sure. After he receives the sign, Gideon obeys. He goes and cuts down the altar to Baal. But rather than doing it openly by day... Gideon is afraid of folks, so he destroys it by night. He kind of sneaks in and does it. And later, when the irate townspeople come for him, I just picture them with torches and pitchforks, <laughs> Gideon lets his father defend him. He doesn't speak up at all. He's kind of hiding behind daddy a little bit. Gideon was not brave. He's full of doubts and insecurities, but one of the things I love about the story of Gideon is how patiently God deals with this man. Take verse 36, for example, and 37 of chapter 6. 
Gideon says, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. (laughs) The point I'm making by pointing out all these faults and foibles of Gideon's is to let you know that he... This is not a story of a remarkable kind of person. This is the kind of story that's for all of us. He was really a man who struggled to believe what God had said. And biblical courage, again, is nothing less than a demonstrated belief in what God has said. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, quote, as you have said, Courage rooted in faith would would not have led off with if, but rather with you have said. Gideon structures this sentence in kind of a strange backwards way. It's logically incoherent to cast doubt on God's veracity and then ask God to repeat himself. He doesn't believe God, but say it again. (laughs) This is kind of what he's saying. The problem is not Gideon's ears, of course, it's his heart. And it's interesting to compare Gideon's answer with Mary. Remember, the angel of the Lord appears to Mary and has this wildly improbable thing that he's going to say. And Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. As you have said, let it be. That's wonderfully courageous stuff. This is the very stuff of biblical courage. But Gideon says, if you're really going to do this as you've said, I don't know. That's not. That's really hard of disbelief speaking. That's fear. Vanitha Rendell Risner writes this about Gideon. It's easy to criticize Gideon for his doubts, but I've doubted as well. I've seen God work in my life, enabling me to do things that I would have thought impossible. But then I still doubt that I can do the next thing. I look at myself and my resources and I feel inadequate all over again, convinced I can't accomplish what's before me. I know that for me, further physical weakness and loss are constants. When I consider the future, I often cry out, Lord, I can't do this. I'm not as strong as you think I am. The Lord isn't looking for your strength or bravery or natural gifts. He wants your reliance on him. The Lord wants to save Israel by Gideon's hand, but Gideon wants proof twice. He first wants the fleece to be wet on the dry ground and then wants to see dry fleece on the wet ground just to be extra sure. From our perspective, Gideon might seem overly skeptical. Why does he keep asking for proof? But then I think about all the times I keep asking for assurance from God. When I feel inadequate to face something, I ask for signs, encouragement from friends, verses that apply to my situation. God understands my frailty. He deals with my weaknesses just like he did Gideon's. Without scorn or chastisement, the Lord remembers that I am dust. She continues on. After giving Gideon all the signs he requested... 
God prepares him to lead the Israelites into battle against the Midianites. 22,000 people showed up for battle, which the Lord declared was too many. With that army, the Israelites could take credit for victory themselves. The Lord tells Gideon to let the fearful warriors go home and choose for battle only those who lap the water instead of kneeling to drink. This results in an army of just 300. The victory would not be credited to the strength of the Israelites. God's power alone would deliver his people. I think we are all somewhere on the spectrum of being not perfect. And the Lord is merciful to work with less than ideal people, people who need extra signs or encouragement and do not have the courage to attack immediately. In chapter 7, look at verses 9 through 11. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say, and afterwards your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. Well, interestingly, Gideon takes option two. If you're afraid, go do this, and it'll help you. And God was merciful to him. In his mercy, God is not an all-or-nothing God. He remembers that we're made of dust. I am um, just constantly impressed in the story of Gideon with how patient he is with Gideon. And frankly, uh, that's my story as well. Very grateful for his patience, for sure. But perhaps most importantly, if we're talking about finding the courage for Christian mission is this last point, which is that courage, biblical courage, is rooted in faith, a a belief in the goodness and necessity of what God has said. But when we talk about faith, we're talking about faith in what? And this is really, I think, the whole point of the reduction of Gideon's army from 22,000 to 300. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the, king, the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling... Let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. 
and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Uh, this is a strange moment. This is the kind of thing that delighted me as a boy when I read this story. Almost just the, uh, just, you know, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And this is so unexpected, what happens here. And it's so contrary to so much of what I do in Christian mission. So much is trying to find more people, more resources, more whatever. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but in the story of David and Goliath, have you ever thought of Goliath as a man of great faith? Of course he was. Goliath possessed an ocean of faith. He stepped out into the space between two armies all by himself and said the loudest, most brash things that could be said in the hearing of everyone. A perfect ocean of confidence was Goliath. Of course he had faith, but faith in what? You see, the whole point of this reduction of Gideon's army is that, yes, he must act with a faith-filled courage, but even here at this moment, there is the danger that he will step out in faith having put his faith in the wrong thing. It's a bit like, um, and I love this illustration, I've used it before, but if you were in an airplane and you had signed up to go skydiving and the plane got up to the height where you were going to level out and you were going to jump out of the airplane with a parachute on, it's a bit like if sitting across from you was a man who had an umbrella And he said, oh, I see you're using one of those newfangled parachutes. I hope that works for you. But me, I bought this wonderful parachute. It's industrial strength. I've seen Mary Poppins. I'm going to jump out, press this button right here, and I'm going to float like a feather to the earth. You're going to plummet to your death probably. So did you see the kid down there who packed the parachutes? You trust him? No, I've got this. And there is not even a shadow of doubt in his mind that the umbrella is going to work perfectly. But you have just, just barely enough faith to jump out of that airplane with the parachute on. When you both jump, his faith was 100% rock-solid sure in that parachute, in the umbrella, I'm sorry. And you had a very imperfect faith in your parachute. Will it matter who had the greater faith? It will not. All that will matter is the object you put the faith in. You can have a perfect ocean of faith in an object that's unworthy. And you can have a mustard seed of faith in God Almighty. And that mustard seed of faith can move mountains. Great things can be accomplished, not because of the quality or quantity of your faith, but because of the object that you put your faith in and had just enough faith to jump, to say, yes, I will trust you instead of being governed by my fears. 
So surely the reduction of Gideon's army to 300 is meant to say, what object have you put your faith in, Gideon? Is your faith in the fact that there's a great turnout to this battle? Is that it? Because if so, you're not operating with biblical courage. You may have a faith-filled courage, but faith in what? This is why so very, very often God leads his people into a place where they have nothing but God to rely on. Feeding of the 5,000. What are you guys going to do to feed all these people? We don't have it. <laughs> That's kind of the point. Faith in what? Faith in your crowd-feeding budget? No. Look to Jesus. He'll guide God's people right to the edge of the Red Sea, hemmed in, trapped, Pharaoh's coming, there's nowhere to go. Why did God bring them there? Faith in what? Faith in the ability of God to make a way where there is none. We could go on and on and on. How many times in the Bible does God do this, where he brings his people out to a place where they have to have faith in him? And perhaps this morning you've come to such a place in your own walk with God. He's calling you out into some aspect of Christian mission. And you've been making pros and cons lists. <laughs> you've been working on the numbers. You've been thinking, yeah, but if I say this, they'll say that. And I think God would have us answer those fears that keep us from stepping out in faith into Christian, that keeps us from jumping out of the plane, frankly, by just saying, trust him. Trust him. Look to him in faith. Think of the three little pigs, the one who constructed the house of sticks and straw. They thought their house was good, but it wasn't. Again, it's the object you place trust in, not the amount of faith necessarily. And I, don't, don't hear me wrong. Please don't get me turned around on this. I do think faith is important, and we can grow in faith, and that's good. I'm just saying far more important than that is what we place our trust in. So today, if the Lord is calling you to a task to which you feel inadequate, remember that the Lord is not looking for your strength or your bravery or your natural giftedness. He doesn't want 22,000 of you necessarily. He wants the 300 that would show in stark relief that he had done something, not you in your own power. What God wants is your reliance on him. That's what he wants. His power is made perfect in our weakness. Uh, very often, you know, in leading a church like ours, we're not like the smallest church in the world. But we're not a big church either. And I think very often we think, boy, what could we do if we had a thousand more people? What could we do if we had a budget in the millions? This is asking completely the wrong question. Have you ever thought for a second that God would be more pleased to do a thing in a small church? We've got to get rid of some of you. <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. We love having you here as part of our church. But I do think that God uh, loves to do things through unexpected people like Gideon, 
through unexpected churches like State Road. I mean, if something were really to break out here, a movement of the Holy Spirit that just surprised and confounded everybody, nobody would say it's because of the dynamism of Josh Tate. Thank God for that. (laughs) Nobody would say any of that stuff. We have some great things going on here, but man, no. So let's stay mediocre. That'd be good. Just kidding. Again, I'll stop cracking jokes. But we know that God looked upon Gideon and saw in him not who he was, perhaps, but who he intended to make him to be. That one day he would be in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 as somebody who conquered kingdoms. The Lord made him strong out of weakness. Or really, to put it better, I think, would be God used him in his weakness. And so if you're weak today, take heart. If you're not a strong person, take heart. If you're not courageous, take heart. If you sometimes move and fits and starts and get it wrong, remember that he remembers you're made of dust. And he's patient with us. We too will be made strong in our weakness when we put our trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you remember we're made of dust. We thank you that your strength is made perfect in weakness. And Father, we ask that you would increase our faith. God, make us stronger in faith. God, increase in us through the Holy Spirit our capacity to believe in the goodness and necessity of what you have said. Father, all of us in our own inner world have things that need to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. There are patterns of sin, strongholds of sin that need to be torn down utterly. And Father, we want to go with you. We know we can't continue to follow you and stay where we are. God, that's true for us personally. It's true for us as a church. God, we want to be with you wherever you're doing whatever it is you're doing. And so, God, do a work of preparation in our hearts so that we can follow you with a full-hearted, courageous faith. And, God, maybe that begins with having a conversation with you about some area of sinful disobedience in our life. Patterns of stopping up our ears to your correction. God, we want to hear from you clearly. So, God, we pray that you would patiently Draw us back into conversation about what you have made explicitly known in your word. And Father, I pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us to proceed with faith in you and not faith in anything else. Father, it is hard for us to walk by faith and not by sight. We want to continuously return to things we can see and observe and control. And Father, it's scary for us to follow you in obedience, especially when you call us out beyond what we can see. But Father, I just pray again by the Holy Spirit that you would increase in us our ability to trust you, that we would answer fears with just a trust in who you are and what you have said and in the goodness and necessity of what you've called us towards. And Father, if there's anything that needs to be taken away from us to help us follow you more fully, God, this is kind of a scary prayer. But I ask it, Lord, knowing that you only give what's good and needed. 
And God, if there's anything that we are leaning on as a church, Father, we invite you to kick it out if it's not a leaning on you. And Father, we ask, Lord, that you would do whatever is necessary to help us follow you more fully. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.